Well, good morning, church. It's great to be here with you today. Welcome to those who are with us online today and to those that are in the building as well. I know a number of our uh, women are away this weekend on a retreat, and I hope that they've uh, enjoyed their time and had a, a wonderful time of fellowship and studying uh, God's Word together this weekend. We had uh, our last weekend this weekend. This is our last day for our memory verse for the month of January. So let's go ahead and say it together as a congregation today. It's from the book of 1 Corinthians. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. That's a good Good verse for us to keep in mind as we study the book of 1 Corinthians together as a congregation. I've shared with you before many years ago uh, when Sheila and I met, we actually met at a summer camp. We were camp counselors. And one of the realities of that was that we were only together for the summer. Summer was coming to an end and we were heading off in our own direction. Sheila lived in Lancaster and I was going back up to Scranton to finish uh, my undergraduate studies up at Baptist Bible College. And so we separated. And, and back then, I know this is going to be hard for many of our students to imagine in this room, those who are probably under the age of 25, uh, there were really only two tools that were <clears throat> effective for long-range relationships. And one of those tools was a letter. And so occasionally, uh, Sheila was much more faithful in this endeavor than I was, but I would try occasionally to chicken scratch something uh, that had meaning behind it in a letter uh, that I would send to her. Uh, but for me and for her, uh, what was more likely to happen was that I was going to pick up the phone uh, and give her a call. Now back then, uh, here's, so here's how our phones look today. Now, now students, I'm going to try to describe a, a picture that may sound horrific to you, but bear with me. Um, back then, these devices, they actually had a, a cord, a curly cord that was attached to the end of them. And that curly cord would plug into a wall so that when you would make a phone call, you could only go so far away from where the curly, curly cord was uh, plugged in. Now, the technology was available, uh, but we were young, poor college students. And, and so some of the, the more um, well-to-do students in our dorm, they had these phones that sat on bases. And they didn't have a cord. And so you could go a little bit further, like maybe in the bathroom, and shut the door and talk with some privacy, but not too much further because they would lose their signal from the base. So you could imagine uh, for a young man trying to build a relationship in a college dorm that was filled with a bunch of guys, it was really, really hard uh, to have any privacy. And uh, to have really uh, the meaningful connection, you know, at the end of the conversation, the whole like goodbye that's kind of like lovey-dovey and you're trying to like, your guy friends are all around you and so you're like, oh, I, I love you, <laughs> you know, like hang on the phone real quick and a guy, you're like, ah, you know, laughing at you. And there was no place to go to hide to have these like real kind of personal, meaningful conversations. You were attached to the cord or to the base that the phone was connected to. Now the problem with that, 
for your friends, whether it be a letter or whether it be a, a phone conversation, they were only able to hear and really understand one side of the conversation. It was a conversation that could very, very easily be taken out of context, uh, even misused. Uh, imagine uh, if you were walking down the street and you were to find a letter, a love letter, that I had written to my wife, then girlfriend. And you were to pick it up and inside the letter you were to read about all of these things that we had done and we had these little words that we'd say to each other in favorite restaurants and songs. That letter would look completely abnormal and out of place to you. It would be out of context. You didn't know. You weren't aware of the background that we shared and all the dynamics that led to why I was writing what I was writing in the letter I had wrote. The same could be true with the phone conversation. You might walk in, I'm on the phone uh, with Sheila, and you may hear one part of the conversation that may lead you to believe something about our relationship that absolutely was not even true. But because you only heard it from one side, it'd be easy to manipulate it and make sense of it however you would want. And sometimes, friends, uh, a similar reality happens when we read biblical text, especially the New Testament letters. Things can easily be taken out of context. Sometimes they can be misapplied, sometimes even to the detriment of another person. And such is the case with the portion of Paul's letter that we're going to explore together today. It's hard to imagine another text of scripture that's probably been more scrutinized, more misapplied, more misread, maybe even misunderstood and misprioritized, certainly, than the one we are exploring together today. And so we need some guardrails for our study this morning. Otherwise, we could easily run off the tracks. And we're going to situate each of the guardrails, there's two, we're going to situate uh, both of them with a question that we are going to further unpack today. And so the first guardrail is this. One, we're going to seek to explore this text today within its broader literary context as it is situated in Paul's letter in chapters 11 to 14. So the question is this. How does the broader literary context of 1 Corinthians 11 to 14 move us towards this specific instruction? So that's the first guardrail. The second guardrail is this. We are going to seek this morning to understand this text as it relates to the specific occasion that Paul is addressing within chapter 14. What is the occasion within the churches that is prompting Paul's instruction? That's the question that we want to answer. And as we study this text together this morning, I recognize that it may be helpful for those listening to have a broader understanding of my personal approach to this portion of Paul's letter. And so I want to uh, share three realities that guide my personal approach to these types of scriptures uh, in the Bible. One, uh, because of my approach to interpreting Scripture, 
with a commitment and a priority giving to the meaning which was intended for the original audience. I will refrain from using this text to make statements or defend statements regarding the roles, titles, or positions of women in ministry that Paul is not intending to make or defend in this passage. Second, because Paul does not make this a matter of first priority, he will address those matters in chapter 15. I personally refrain from making this text a doctrinal matter of first priority or an indication of another person's commitment to biblical orthodoxy or inerrancy. And finally, because I seek to honor other Christ followers throughout the world that understand, interpret, and apply this text in diverse ways, I too will commit to remaining a student of the scripture with a spirit of humility, one who is willing to listen and to learn from other disciples of Jesus who hold perspectives, interpretations, and practices that differ from my own. And so with that understanding, we'll step into the text today. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 33 through 40. And we're going to pray and ask the Lord to help us. Let's pray. Father, we open your word this morning and we approach this text with open hearts and a spirit of humility. We know that your spirit is at work even now through your living and active word to apply to each one of us exactly what we need in this time. That's what you do, Father. And so we are excited about that. We are always excited to open your word because we know that in it and through it, uh, you will work. Your word never returns void. And so we are thankful this morning that we get to gather as a congregation around your word to explore these words that Paul wrote to this church in Corinth and to understand how they might apply in our lives and in the ministries that we're a part of today. Help us to grow together in love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting at verse 33b and moving through verse 40, Paul's words to the church in Corinth. As in all of the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful to a, for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. So then, brothers and sisters, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all should be done decently and in order. All scriptures, friends, all scriptures must be interpreted within their broader literary context. And this portion of Paul's letter began all the way back in chapter 11. Paul began this portion where he was focused on public and corporate gatherings of believers in worship. Corinth, we remember, was a who's who type of city. It wasn't much different from our culture today. Power and position gave way to platforms 
from which one could find themselves in an incredible place of influence. And even from the beginning of his letter, Paul is subverting this attitude. Hence, he's come in weakness. He's come in fear and with much trembling. He intends as a pastor to this congregation to lead from his weakness. Power, as the Corinthians understood and interpreted it, would not be the platform from which Paul would minister. This model, the model and example of his ministry, is a model for us today. It begins with Christ and his cross. Paul's message and his rhetoric, what he's bringing to the people, is it's not complex and dynamic by the world standards. Rather, it's singular. It's coherent. It's able to unite a diverse people because the people of Corinth were diverse. His message was Christ and him crucified. So as Paul opens chapter 11, the instruction that guides this whole section is a verse that serves as a sort of bridge between chapter 10 and chapter 11. It's instruction that's both for our personal and corporate lives. It's found in verse 1 of chapter 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So the priority then, as we enter our public worship environments, is solely centered on Jesus. He's our source. He's our portion. He is the head of the church. And as we entered the corporate assembly in chapter 11, we were confronted, if you remember back, with a fresh and life-giving reality One, though, that even though it was fresh and life-giving, it needed some shepherding and some nurturing. So think back with me to the beginning of chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. This was what was taking place in public worship. Any man who prays or prophesies with his head covered disgraces his head in verse 5. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered disgraces her head, for it is one and the same thing as having a shaved head. So men and women are praying and prophesying together in public. They're sharing their gifts with one another in these public worship settings. But they were not always sharing their gifts in a way that honored one another appropriately. And this was ultimately dishonoring to God. And it was even spilling over into the way that the Corinthians were coming together to practice the Lord's Supper. The most influential or the most powerful people among them were being served first. And this was to the detriment of the common layperson. We remember this instruction in chapter 11, verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And this disorder within the church, it had a creeping effect. It was even disruptive to the using and the sharing of the spiritual gifts among those who were gathered in Corinth. As is true today, friends, appearances were very important to the people. And the people wanted to appear to one another as being spiritual. That was a high priority. And because of this, there was envy in the church over those who practiced or appeared to have 
the supernatural gifts. Paul's admonition in chapter 12 is that all of the gifts, regardless of what they are, were given by the same Spirit for the common good. And he talks about how the stronger or more enviable parts of the body need the weaker parts, and how the weaker parts need the stronger. Each part is indispensable to the other. And so Paul instructs on the importance of caring for one another and honoring one another in a self-sacrificing way that promotes unity. This is his message as he moves through chapter 11 and 12. We are being formed as communities where suffering and rejoicing together as one body is to be facilitated and encouraged. And so with all this in view, Paul is moving us towards the hallmark of his teaching in this section. If we are to live as a community with one another in this self-sacrificial type of way, it is going to require an uncommon commitment to the more excellent way. One which Paul defines in chapter 13 as love. He says, so now, faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. In the application of love, as Paul has defined it, and not just defined it, but as he's actually deployed it in his own life and ministry, we are actually one step closer to the imitation of Christ, which is guiding this whole section. And still yet, there was a persistent obstacle. And it was most primarily situated with the way that two of the more enviable sign gifts were being applied within this blossoming Christian community. So you had tongues in chapter 14 and prophecy. And they continued to prove more disruptive than conducive to the building up of the church. Women and men who employed the gift of tongues in public settings, they were doing so without interpreters. And few could understand what was being said. And men and women who were prophesying in public settings, they were not talking in turn. They were not allowing time for other people to speak. They were analyzing and critiquing and and making over-contributions to the message that was given and its contents. All of this, friends, was happening at the expense of mutual edification for the entire body. This was affecting the growth, the maturity, and the stability, and the overall harmony of the church. And so as we covered together the last few weeks, Paul actually puts up some guardrails around these two specific gifts to ensure that if and when they are shared, that they are shared in a way that prioritizes the growth of the community or the other over the individual that may be actually sharing them. And as we explored last week, Paul gave instructions, these instructions, both to men and women in the church regarding when to be silent as it specifically relates to each of these two gifts. First, it was to the men, the men and the women who might speak in tongues. It was given to both here. If there was no interpreter, then each must keep silent. You can see the instruction 
from verse 28 on the screen. If there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Next, it was given to the men and women who might share or prophesy while others away what has been said and give revelation. They were to keep silent. If a revelation is made by another sitting there, let the first be silent. Then finally, in today's text, to the married women with believing husbands, if there is an insistence to question, to evaluate, or to chatter regarding the message of the prophet, it was better to keep silent. Look again in verse 34. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law says. But what about what he just said in chapter 11, where women are present and they are prophesying and praying and sharing their gifts in the public setting? That's a good question. And Paul's not reversing his position on earlier instruction regarding men and women both praying and prophesying in public worship settings. Rather, he's giving here specific instruction to women regarding how and when they evaluate or analyze another man's prophecy. One way that a woman married to a believing husband in the Corinthian church could show their willful submission, hence demonstrating their self-sacrificial love towards others in the context of public worship settings was not to publicly critique, question, evaluate, or analyze the prophecy of another man. And one particular point of difficulty, I, I realize there may be many within this text, but one particular point of difficulty is the way that we have seen Paul's use of the word law in this text. It's very interesting. Paul's used the word law at least nine other places in this letter. And he has used it in different ways. Sometimes Paul's referring to the Old Testament law. But oftentimes when he does this, he directly quotes from the passage he is referencing. We see this in Corinthians 9, verses 8 to 10, but we also see this in the context. It's right in 1 Corinthians 14, 21. Take a look again a few verses back up. In the law, capital L, it is written, and then he quotes from the prophet. By the people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. In other places, in the same letter, he's referencing public Roman law or house codes and a lowercase l is used. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 and verse 6. 1 Corinthians 9, 20 to 21 are instances of this. It's important for us, friends, as readers of the Bible, to understand that the capitalization of the word law is done by the translators and the editors of the specific versions that we use. This word is not capitalized in the original Greek. And not every literal translation, word-for-word -word translation, capitalizes the word law in this text. In fact, I have three examples. The top example is a literal word-for-word -word translation, the New English translation, where the word law is lowercase. And then again in the NIV, you'll see the word law is lowercase. And again in the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, which is LifeWay's 
version that they uh, put out, the word law, again, is lowercase. We could assume or read into the text that Paul is referencing the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. Some scholars do that. But the problem with this view is that there is no specific law in the Mosaic law that embraces the instruction in this context. And if Paul was referring to the Old Testament, why wouldn't he reference the quote as he just did a few verses earlier? It may be the case that Paul's referring to some law or house code that existed in Corinth as it was governed by Rome. And regardless of which law Paul is referencing here, the reality was that for women who were married to believing husbands, they could wait to ask the question at home, in smaller company, thereby giving opportunity in the public settings for others to question or analyze or give revelation to the message of the prophet. Now for verse 35. Take a look. If there is anything that they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And again, we have to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we strongly hold this passage in context and recognize that our ESV translation team does not do us a service here either by using the word shameful here and disgraceful in chapter 11, verse 6, when in the Greek they are the exact same word. The exact same word. So if you remember chapter 11, verse 6, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Paul only uses this word two times, twice, in his entire letter to the Corinthians. He uses it here in 11.6, and he uses it in 14.35. The word disgraceful in 11.6 is the same exact Greek word that's used in 14.35. And so once again, I think the more helpful translation for us to look at in this particular text is the New English translation, which is also a literal word-for-word translation. Here's the New English translation's rendition of verse 35. If they want to find out about something, they should ask their husbands at home because it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. And you can see the NET holds the consistency of the translation at a higher standard of importance than the ESV. Going back to Paul's first use of this word in the letter, which happens to be at the beginning of this literary section, what Paul is trying to do is preserve the grace and the dignity of the women who are sharing their gifts within the publicly gathered assembly. In the first use of the word, there were broader uh, cultural and social implications connected to a woman shaving her head. These implications, they would have been distracting and disruptive to a person in attendance from another cultural, social, or religious background. And now here again, in this setting, if a woman married to a believing husband 
was constantly and consistently questioning, critiquing, analyzing, or responding to prophecy, especially to the prophecy of a man in public worship settings, this could look rather unbecoming to her. Especially when one in attendance might realize or understand that she could ask her husband the same questions at home and yield so that someone else may be able to share in the public setting. Consistently breaking in to contribute, to analyze, or to critique may very quickly make it appear to others that one considers themselves to have a special or higher knowledge or understanding of the word than others. And again, this would have promoted an upbuilding of oneself and giving the appearance of spirituality, something that was very important to the people of Corinth, keeping up with appearances. And so look at how Paul critiques that attitude in verse 36. Did the word of God begin with you? Or did it come to you alone? This reflective question could be aimed at either men or women, but Paul's aiming it at the women here who were insistently questioning or critiquing the message of the prophet. And before we move on, I do recognize that in our society today and in our culture today, that there may be some who see this teaching as very repressive towards women, and perhaps fairly so. But I also think that it's important for us to recognize that what Paul has already determined and indicated regarding the role of women in public worship, both their presence and their contribution, was far beyond what was commonly accepted and practiced in his time and space. Following in the example of Jesus, Paul had an incredibly high view of women, especially when compared to the popularly accepted positions within his broader historical, cultural, and social context. What might appear as repressive today, friends, was rather progressive in Paul's time and for Paul's day. So just as Paul has summarized his teaching from chapters 8 through 10 with a summary statement in chapter 10, 32 to 33, so too does he now close his instructions from chapter 11 to 14 with a summary statement. And so let's refamiliarize ourselves with the front part of the concluding statement. It's found in verses 37 and 38. <clears throat> if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. As Dr. Kenneth Bailey has astutely observed in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, he said this, quote, The many problems related to worship discussed in chapters 11 to 14 can only be adequately solved by the love that Paul has so brilliantly defined in chapter 13, end quote. Thus, Dr. Bailey, among many other New Testament scholars, I believe rightly places Paul's reference to the command back on the greatest command, which is love, sitting masterfully as the centerpiece of this entire section of Paul's letter. Only love, friends, is able to resolve the tension that exists when a large group of people come together, each with a gift they desire to share, but only so much time to share it 
to use it or apply it. The imitation of Christ that's guiding this entire section of Scripture demands a self-sacrificing love, one that readily yields to others, one that's focused on the upbuilding of others, one that's eager to console, to be gentle, to be peace-loving and generous. And when the fruit of the Spirit is present in our public worship settings, many of the issues that plagued the Corinthian gatherings would simply dissolve as in love we consider one another better than ourselves and give up our own upbuilding for the building up of others. Love is the command that governs this entire section of Paul's letter. Love is the context from which the instructions of verses 34 through 35 flow. Love is the first and the greatest command from our Lord. Look at verse 38. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. In verses 39 to 40, as they're found in the NET translation, I'll put them on the screen, believing this is the more consistent translation. So then, brothers and sisters, Paul's instruction is given to the whole congregation, not just to the men. Be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid anyone from speaking in tongues. And do all things in a decent and orderly manner. And so Paul has used throughout this section, in chapters 11 to 14, a number of these quote-unquote all statements to summarize the priority teachings in this section. This actually even goes back to his summary verse in chapter 10, and I've identified some of them for us this morning. We remember at the end of chapter 10, all things for the glory of God. Then chapter 11, verse 2, all things come from God. Then chapter 12, verse 7, all gifts, all gifts for the common good. Chapters 12, verses 12 and 13, all members of one body. Chapter 13, all things in love. Chapter 14, verse 26, all things for the building up of the church. And now Paul concludes in verse 40, all things decently and in order. With such statements, Paul has reminded us through this text of the priorities that should guide and govern our corporate assemblies. And though the gifts of tongues and prophecy could be and were being misused, Paul did not want anyone to forbid the speaking in tongues, nor to refrain from prophecy. Rather, Paul's desire was that the sharing of these very visible and publicly natured gifts would be done so in a way that took into consideration the needs of the larger body that would be gathered. Sharing our gifts, friends, ultimately we find in chapters 11 through 14 is not about us and what we do. Rather, the focus is always to be on the one who is being served. So that in our weakness, in our fear, and in our trembling, as we share the strength and the glory of God might be magnified through our ministry. So the question that we have asked as we've spent a lot of time in Paul's letter together at the end of, of each of our uh, messages is how might we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church in an over 
overwhelmingly unbelieving world, in light of what we've read today, we might say this. Doing all things with decency and in order, we gather to share our gifts, glorifying God and building one another up, yielding to one another according to love's command. As our team comes this morning, let's pray. Father, we do indeed thank you for your word. We thank you for the gifts that you have given us. We thank you that in our church, you have assembled a diverse body from many different backgrounds, many different places, according to many different traditions. And you have gifted, equipped, and empowered each one of us to share those gifts with one another. Lord, as we do so, our hope and our focus would be that through Paul's instruction in chapters 11 through 14, our hearts would be tuned rightly towards the others that we are in community with. And it would not be about us, about the way that we might look, about the knowledge that we might possess or what we might think we know. But Lord, that it might be about you, that we might look at Paul's words in chapter 13 and that they might not be just Uh, table talk, Lord, or window dressing, but they would actually take root in our hearts and our minds and that they would guide and govern the very actions of our lives as we seek to grow in community and grow in relationship with one another in a way that embodies uh, the same ideals that your son embodied when he came to earth. Lord, help us serve one another self-sacrificially. Help us lay down our lives for one another. Help us give up of ourselves so that we might build into and build up the church for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.